For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're in the book of Acts. This is the story of the early church. The year is 49 AD. And just to recap what we talked about last time in Acts chapter 15, this is a map of the, the first missionary journey. Paul, our main characters at this point are Paul and Barnabas, and they spent about probably a year and a half traveling down to Cyprus and up around and through what is modern day Turkey, planting a series of churches and God's word was going out powerfully. And then they came back to their home base of Antioch to find some problems. We talked about these problems last week. There were teachers coming in and saying, that's good that these non-Jews have become Christians, but now they have to become Jews. They have to follow the Jewish laws, including the dietary laws, including the whole Old Testament law, including the law of circumcision, which was a big barrier for a lot of grown men that didn't really want to get circumcised. And so we saw a huge fight broke out with, uh, where Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to these churches he had just planted, arguing against these false teachers. He's arguing against Peter and even Barnabas here in Antioch. And so they make the journey from Antioch down to Jerusalem, a distance of 250 miles, to settle this issue once and for all with the, the leaders of the, the, the Jerusalem church, the original apostles, guys like James, etc., and what they came out of that meeting in Jerusalem with was a letter that said the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. And so the Jerusalem church sent Paul and his buddies as well as two of their own leaders, Judas and Silas. Silas is going to become an uh, important player tonight. They sent them back up to Antioch, uh, back 250 miles. So Paul's walked at this point a round trip of 500 miles to settle this issue. They show up at Antioch with this letter and as we read last week, there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read the encouraging message that all the Gentiles in Antioch didn't need to get circumcised. It's a cause for joy, among other things. So we read on. He tells us that Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. These guys were prophet, pre, prophets and preachers. Those are often used kind of interchangeably. They would speak a message from the Lord. Didn't necessarily have to be telling the future. And so these guys from Jerusalem, they spent some time ministering there, encouraging the believers, speaking at their meetings at Antioch. And then finally, it says, after they stayed for a while, the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with the blessing of peace. So Judas and Silas leave, and they go back to the Jerusalem church. Paul and Barnabas, though, stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. And so some time passes, probably not that long, maybe months and probably in the year 49 AD, Paul gets an idea. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to hear how, see how the new believers are doing. He probably also was interested in getting the contents of this letter firsthand to these churches and making sure they were straight on the issue of grace. This is really the question. Was trusting in Christ alone enough for salvation or did some works need to be added to that? And he was, wanted to argue the case even stronger. No additional works. It's Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. Well, Barnabas agreed. That's a great idea. Let's take along John Mark. Do you remember John Mark? Do you remember on the first missionary journey? They got half, not even halfway through, and he decided he was done, and he quit, and he sailed back and left Paul and Barnabas to go the rest of the way on their own right before the really hard part started. Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. 
Paul was like, no. And Barnabas was like, yeah. He's like, no, yeah. And so they would have argued this out. You know, Paul, it's not like he didn't like Mark or he had some theological difference. He just didn't think Mark was tough enough for what lie ahead of them. You know, they, they, they counted on him. They spent all that money, two, two boat journeys. They get all the way to Perga and then Mark quits on them. Paul's like, no, I just, I don't, I haven't seen enough. I'm not ready to trust him again at that level. And so eventually, it says their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. They split up. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Cyprus is where Barnabas was from, and maybe Mark as well. They went back home. They were, Barn, uh, Barnabas was John Mark's cousin, so he had kind of a soft spot for him. So what Luke's telling us is the band broke up. How sad is that? Barnabas, we've been through so much together, and now he's gone, takes off with John Mark. Well, a lot of people are surprised by this and even a little saddened that this would happen. But, you know, we really shouldn't be surprised. You know, there's a lot of judgment calls in ministry. There's a lot on the line. Anytime people get together, they're going to have different opinions on things. Um, And I would say, you know, a leadership team or even a marriage that never has any conflict might be a group or a marriage that is not that engaged. You're just going to have conflict. You're going to have things you want to do different ways. There's, there's so much at stake for Paul, for Barnabas, for the people they're hoping to reach for Christ, and they just couldn't come to an agreement. I do think it's cool how Luke is very real about the people that he narrates here in the book of Acts. The Bible is really known for being very real. Conflict is going to happen sometimes, anytime you get people together. And so that's why we need to learn how to resolve conflict in a godly way. A lot of times, person A and person B each want to do things one way or the other way. And what they come up with is a compromise that's better than either of them had in the first place. So a lot of times, conflict can be pretty productive. We can grow closer together through it. We definitely need to make sure that we're careful when we're in conflict and things are heated, that we don't say things that we're going to regret later. They're going to make reconciliation later more difficult. Because there's some things that are pretty hard to take back. Well, this is actually the last time we see Barnabas or Mark in the book of Acts. You know, Barnabas apparently had a different calling than Paul. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he takes Mark with him and he heads out. He He saw something there in Mark. He believed in Mark just like he saw something in Paul when nobody else did and believed in him. Some people are like, which one was right, Barnabas or Paul? And I think... I think they're both fine in the decision that they made here. I don't think one was right and one was wrong. This is also not the end of the story for either of them. Paul refers to Barnabas very warmly in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 as an example of a sacrificial minister a few years later. Apparently the Corinthians knew about Barnabas as well somehow, maybe administered there. Uh, But his work with Mark was probably even more successful that anything we hear about from Barnabas, he, he was able to deliver Mark as a reliable Christian worker. Mark went on to write the Gospel of Mark. This is Peter's memoirs that Mark wrote up for him. We have that in our Bibles today. I'm pretty glad that he delivered Mark as a worker. We wouldn't have the book of Mark otherwise. In Colossians 4.10, at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul's in prison, he writes Colossians, and he says, man, Mark's here with me now, and he sends his greetings. So he's there faithfully serving Paul by the end of the book of Acts. Only about 10 years after this, this event here, we're reading about this, this split up. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, at the end of Paul's life, he says, look, he's writing to Timothy and he says, everybody but Luke has deserted me 
he says, Timothy, can you come soon? And when you come, please bring Mark with you. He's such a good worker. And so we see a real, a real turnaround for Mark. He becomes reliable. There's always hope for anybody. We don't write people off. And we see a real cool reconciliation and a future partnership for these guys. And so just because maybe God doesn't have us working together now doesn't mean he's not going to have us working together at some point again in the future. Of course, now Paul needs a partner. He knew Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. We do not go off to do ministry alone. That's autonomous spirit and it's going to get us into major trouble. No, he needed a team. He starts rebuilding his team. And who does he pick? It says Paul chose Silas, the guy he just sent back to Jerusalem. And as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. So Silas then has to walk the 250 miles back up. Or maybe he took a boat, I don't know. But he picks Silas as his partner. And Silas was a great choice. He's sometimes called Silvanus. We read about in the epistles. That's the same guy as Silas. He's the co-author of First and Second Thessalonians. Shows up in 1-1 in those books, 1-2. He was a delegate from the Jerusalem church. What a perfect guy to show up with the letter from the Jerusalem council. The guy the church in Jerusalem picked to explain their side of it, to serve as a witness. What a good dude for that. Probably better than Barnabas would have been. He also was a Roman citizen, which carried a number of privileges with it, privileges that are going to come in handy in the story we're going to read later tonight. So God was at work here. He actually had a better role for Barnabas, one he was more suited to. He had a better plan for Mark right now at his point in his life. And he had a better co-worker for Paul ready to go. A guy who wouldn't have been available, who wouldn't have been that good for the first missionary journey. Now, Bar- now he's great for this one. Well, it says then Paul and, and Silas traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. So we got a new missionary journey, a second journey. We got another map now too. They went from Antioch up into this region here. This is where they planted those churches on the first missionary journey. They went through from church to church, strengthening the churches. Paul went first to Derby, so he just went right up that road, right around the corner, through the mountains, to Derby, and then he went on to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. I mentioned him when he planted the church at Lystra, this little backwoods village town with not that much Jewish influence, apparently. And uh, who does Paul lead to Christ on the first, first journey but Timothy? Well, now Timothy's had a couple years to grow in his faith. He's still probably in his late teens. He's a young guy. But it said, and it says his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Yeah, and his dad apparently wouldn't let him get circumcised. And so he, he would have been considered a Jew, but was uncircumcised. His mother was godly and his grandmother, though. He was raised in the scriptures. Well, it says Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. And so he was known as a godly dude there. He was becoming a good Christian worker. And so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. And so he picks Timothy, maybe to fill the role that John Mark was playing on the first missionary journey. And he decides to take him along as well. But then Luke tells us something very strange. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. What? You thinking Paul circumcised Timothy? Luke, have you read Luke 15? Didn't we just read the big battle over the issue of circumcision? 
how, how Paul wrote a sixth chapter diatribe to the Galatian churches arguing against circumcision. How he wished the circumcisers would just cut the whole thing off themselves. Do you remember that? If you take circumcision, you've got to take the whole law on. Do you remember the big battle he had publicly with Peter over related issues to that? One that Barnabas was even on the wrong side of? How Paul walked 500 miles? And I'm sure he would have walked 500 more. <laughs> just to take down this notion to settle it once and for all, the notion that you had to be circumcised, that you had to add anything to Christ. And then they get this letter, and they're carrying the letter to the churches to tell them, you don't need to be circumcised. And then what does he do? He circumcises Timothy? You think you're surprised. That's not how Timothy feels. <laughs> Hey, Paul, how come I'm the only one that's got to get circumcised anymore? <laughs> okay, what's the issue here? The short answer is this is not about salvation, about adding anything for salvation. It's about strategy. It's about ministry strategy. You see, the decree said Gentiles didn't need to get circumcised. But... Timothy wasn't a Gentile. He was an uncircumcised Jew, and everybody knew it. And so, you know, Paul's strategy, remember, the first thing he does, he goes to the synagogue, he speaks there. They needed that access. They, the gospel, Paul says, goes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so they still wanted to reach Jews for Christ. And with Timothy, they might not have had that access. They might have been, they might have been rejected by the more pious Jews. This might have just been too much for them to handle. An uncircumcised Jew, what are you bringing here, Paul? And so it says Paul got Timothy circumcised, or literally, Paul circumcised Timothy is what Luke says. So he might have even done it himself, which is really weird. <laughs> but he would have had this skill as a rabbi. as a high-ranking rabbi. So there you go. The point, the point is that sometimes we waive our freedoms and suffer in order to serve God. And that if you want credibility, you're going to have to go through some suffering. Identifying with the people you're trying to reach in some cases. You know, what we don't ask is, what are my rights? And demanding my rights. What we ask is, how can I lay down my life for others? Including my rights. That's what Jesus did, and that's what Paul models. And we're going to see more of that from Paul later tonight. Well, it says they went from town to town. It says Paul, Silas, and Timothy now instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. You can see an explicit reference to that letter and the decree that they wrote up. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. And so this had a real healthy effect on those groups. Their backs centered fully even more on grace. And they're, they're growing, they're strengthened, they're full of joy. And next it says Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia. So they head up northwest. But that's not where Paul intended to go at first. Luke tells us the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. And so Asia is not like what we think of as Asia. Asia was actually the province to the left of which Ephesus was the capital. And so Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, which was a major city 
He felt like God was calling him there. And in fact, God is going to send him there, but not now. The Spirit says no. <laughs> it doesn't tell us how the Spirit said no, but they knew that the, Spirit blo- the Holy Spirit blocked them. And so they're like, well, I guess we'll just keep following this road. They came to the borders of Mycenae, and they, they decided to head north for the province of Bithynia, up this way. But, again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Boom. No. It doesn't say how. It just says he made it clear. And so they're just moving along here. God's opening some doors, but shutting others. There's, this would have been a lengthy process of confusion and waiting, and they would take the next step in front of them and talk about it and pray and... They're just kind of moving through, through, through Turkey here, right? And so instead, they went on through Mycenae to the seaport of Troas. I mean, they've already been southeast. They can't go southwest. They can't go northeast. That leaves one direction. And so they head this way to Troas in Mycenae. Troas, a major port city. And that night, it was one night in Troas where Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there. So that's up this direction. Greece, he was standing there pleading with them, come over to Macedonia and help us. Who was this guy? We don't know. But it says, so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Did you notice anything there? The change in pronouns, I hope so, because I underlined it. (laughs) This is the first of what theologians call the we passages in in Acts. The we passages. And that's not like, oh, look at the we little passages. (laughs) No, this is... These we passages, this is where Luke has joined the action. They must have picked him up in Troas. And so he no longer says they did this and they did that, but then we did this. And you'll notice detail gets a lot more specific. It shoots up when uh, Luke joins the action. You know, if they have, a, if they have a, a journey, he tells the port of departure, the port of arrival, and usually how the weather was, <laughs> how long it took. And so Luke here has joined the action at Troas. And some people ask, if God wanted him in Greece, why didn't he tell him sooner? Why go through this whole lengthy... Not here, not there, wandering along. And now finally, why couldn't he give him that vision back in Thyatira? Back in Lystra? Um, You know, why not? Well, this is how God often works. And one reason is because God likes talking with us. And he knows that's our biggest need. We need need to talk with him a lot more than we need the answer to what we're supposed to do. He'll give us that. You know, if God just told the answer, us the answer right away every time, then uh, I think we'd be a lot less motivated to talk with him. As we enter into that confusion, he, he wants to grow our relationship with him. He wants to grow our trust in him. And so we express trust even though we don't know the way. You know, we take the step he has in front of us even though we don't know the next 10 steps. We talk with each other about it. You can see them consulting with one another. You can see them concluding as a group, this is what God wants for us here. But there's a, there's a process here. And God wants to teach you to trust him and to follow his will. And that's the best possible thing that can happen to you because God's got all these plans, but if he laid them all out for us in advance, we might get pretty overwhelmed. And so he just gives us the thing we need to know. 
And then he wants, he wants us to sit back and watch when he does his part, what, what really comes through. He's got all, these, he's got all these, this knowledge that you just don't have. Yeah. For example, he had plans for them in Troas. What would have happened if he said, just go to Macedonia? Would they have bypassed Troas altogether? Who did they meet in Troas? Luke. Luke apparently came to Christ and joined their group all in that brief stopover in the city of Troas. God knew Luke was there. God knew Timothy was there at Lystra and Luke was at Troas. And um, he knew that, that Luke would become one of Paul's best friends for the rest of his life. He'd become Paul's traveling doctor, which would be pretty handy to have. Luke would also, God knew, become the guy who would write more of the New Testament than anyone, including Paul. Do you realize that? Luke and Acts together are longer than all of Paul's epistles. We, where would we be tonight if Luke hadn't written Acts? I don't know. <laughs> and so Paul has picked up two of the best friends that he's going to have for the rest of his life on this second missionary journey, and he, we haven't even reached Greece yet. So we're off to a pretty good start. But this is why we need the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need God to bless our ministries. We desperately need that. We need God. You know, we might have our own plans, and that's good. And this is not passivity God's calling for. But we need him to bless our ministry. We need him to guide our plans. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his footsteps. That's what we need from God. And that's what they got here. So we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. That was the halfway point between these two. They must have had a pretty good wind behind them because they made this journey in two days. The next day we landed at Neapolis. I wonder how Luke knew that Samothrace was the halfway point and that Neapolis and Troas were major port cities. Uh, maybe because he was there and he's an awesome historian. From there we reached Philippi a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. Both are correct, exactly right, and we stayed there several days. Mm, Philippi, the Roman colony. We have the archaeological site today. We know a decent amount about this, this city. Philippi was founded way back in 358 B.C. by Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's dad, so Philip, Philippi. But... This got upgraded to Roman colony status about 300 years later when Augustus beat Mark Antony in this final decisive battle on the plain just outside of Philippi. And so he made Philippi a Roman colony. What did that mean? The colony status carried special privileges. They were tax exempt. They were self-governed. They had ownership rights that you would have had. Basically, it was as though they were on Roman soil back in Italy. That's the sort of privileges they had, and they were very proud of it and uh, would do whatever they could to retain that status. Roman soldiers would then get sent there to retire. That was the retirement plan. This was one of the places they would give you a plot of land in Philippi. And so you had all these uh, tough ex-soldiers who were loyal to Rome stationed there on this town that was in a very key location right on this, this major east-west road. This is where they were. What happens at Philippi? Well, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. Why outside the city? Remember they used to try to find the synagogue? Apparently, there were so few Jews here, they didn't have enough for a synagogue. You needed 10 men. They didn't have that. 
And so they go out looking for the place of prayer. And a lot of times they would, they would have this place of prayer, they'd have it near water. They liked running water because they'd use it for certain washings required by Judaism. And so they go out looking for the, um, the river. This is the river Gangetes, which was about a little over a mile outside the city. I wonder how Luke knew there was a river, not in the city, but just outside the city. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. So it doesn't even sound like there's any men here in this group, this prayer group. Women, Jewish, Jewish women. And, and he, there's even some that don't look like they're Jews, but they've kind of converted mostly to Judaism. One of them was named Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. Lydia from Thyatira. Well, we know from other ancient sources that Thyatira was well known for its very expensive purple dyeing processes. Clinton Arnold says, Homer speaks of purple dyeing take place in the, re- uh, in the regions of Lydia and Caria. So it was actually originally called Lydia, became Thyatira. Apparently Lydia was kind of named after the, the people they descended from. Pliny says the practice was invented by the Lydians. Seven inscriptions have now been discovered that attest to a guild of dyers in Thyatira. This was very expensive. It's, there's good reason to think that the color purple could only be sold to and worn by the emperor and his people. So Lydia from Thyatira would have been a very, very wealthy woman. This would be like we met a woman who was a seller of Versace, <laughs> Prada. And here she is. They come down and they find this rich woman. They, they, come to, they come here looking for a man from Macedonia. And what do they find? A woman wearing purple. She worshiped God. That, that, that usually means she's not Jewish, but she's converted to monotheism. She worships the God of the Bible, but she doesn't quite follow all the, the laws of the Old Testament. But she's there, and Paul and Silas, they begin speaking the word of God here. And as she listened to us, Luke says, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. I think this is cool because we see here God's part and our part in ministry. You know, this is not passivity where Paul just did nothing and waited for God to, to do something. He was just going to let go and let God. No, he went there looking. There's a hunger here. There's a seeking out on, the, on our Paul and his buddy's part. But there's only so much they can do. They can speak the word, but other people have to listen. And God is ultimately the one that opens people's hearts. He sees the kernel of faith there. Scripture says nobody can have faith unless God grants it. And so there's some role God plays in our faith. There's still a, a willingness that's got to be there on our part as well. Scripture clearly teaches that, and yet God also is somehow involved in that process too. And so this takes the pressure on us, off us that I have to do everything perfectly and I have to get results. I've I got to be faithful. That's what God wants from us. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. So she apparently has a whole household she's running. I don't know if she was widowed or just she had um, employees, household servants. Um, I don't know. But she had a big enough house to hold at least Paul... Silas, Timothy, Luke, and a whole other household full of, of people. And she, she leads them all to Christ. She says, look, if you agree I'm a true believer in the Lord, come and stay at my home. You see a reluctance here from Paul. And she urged us until we agreed. I don't know the reluctance. I know Paul would get accused of being a guy who was peddling the word of God for profit. 
So maybe he was kind of reluctant to accept this hospitality from this woman. I'm not sure. But they eventually agree to go and stay at her place. This is what Jesus calls the man or woman of peace. When he sends out his disciples, he says, go, teach about, teach the the gospel of the kingdom, and then um, if nobody accepts, then move on. But if, if... Look for somebody whose, God, whose heart God has already prepared. And when they respond and they invite you in, stay there and receive whatever they give you. Don't be too proud to accept help. Teach the word of God until it's time to move on. And uh, this is what we see in some cases. Missionaries talk about this. They move into an area and they'll find that certain people there, God's, God's heart has already been, God has already prepared their heart. You may find there's people in your life that God has already prepared their heart. And our job is, is to, to speak the word of God to the people we know and to people we don't know until we find people who God already has marked out, whose, whose hearts God is already working and who may have even been calling out to God for more answers. And then once these people come to Christ, sometimes there's a temptation to pull the person into Christian community. And we do need to help them build in with, with other Christians, but we also need them to reach out to the members of their household, their, their network of friends and family and to tell them about Jesus. And Lydia does that here. Well, so this church is really is starting to get off the ground here. Lydia's house seems to be the, the, the centerpiece. But Paul says one day as we were going down to that place of prayer, so they would go back out to this place. We met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. Well, this is kind of strange. Telling the future. It literally says she had a python spirit. A, a spirit of python. And that's, um, if, uh, if, if, you've, if you've read ancient Greek mythology, you've heard of the oracle at Delph- Delphi. There was a, a, a woman there who was called the pythoni. And she was kind of like the, the head fortune teller, future teller. And uh, so there were, there were women all around the empire kind of like this girl here. Sometimes they were old ladies and sometimes they were young girls like this, but they would, they would tell the future. And, uh, you know, when it comes to telling the future, ultimately only God can tell the future. He can tell the future hundreds of years in advance. He's the only one that can do that. Satan can't tell the future. However, he can't guess the future pretty well or even influence the future through people. He actually can control people, can possess people um, who open themselves up to him, and uh, he can influence the future. And so he does have some limited ability to tell the future in, the, in this sense of the word. Now, some fortune tellers you come across, they're fakes, while others are empowered by the occult. There are people that, you know, and this, is why, this is why God says, just stay away from the occult altogether, because your best case scenario is you just have sort of a trickster, some sleight of hand person who's tricking you into thinking they're telling the future. Worst case scenario, you actually are reaching out to evil spirit beings and putting yourself in great danger. And some of you, you've got some experience with the occult. You know it's real. You're terrified of it even, perhaps. God says he's the only one that can protect you from it. He's so much more powerful than Satan. You need, you need God's spirit to come and dwell inside of you, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Well, this girl could tell the future. And so she would follow Paul and the rest of us, shouting... These men are servants of the Most High God. And they have come to tell you how to be saved, literally, a way of salvation. 
It seems kind of weird that a, that a demon would say this. Well, this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, or I think deeply troubled is a better translation, that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. So at first glance, it seems like Paul's just having a bad day and he just can't take this girl anymore. And he just loses it. But no, he's deeply troubled, actually, by what's going on here. Why was he so deeply troubled? First of all, the exploitation of this little girl. She was being used by multiple masters to make money as she was tormented by this demon. How heartless is that? He just he couldn't stand to see this girl being used in this way. He was also bothered, by, I think, by the content of the message. He was speaking in terms like servants of the Most High God which a pagan would interpret very differently than any Jew would. It's confusing, the message. He, and it, says, it, it just says, a way to be saved, which could be translated the way, but I think a way to be saved is a much better, more likely translation. So it just kind of sounds like she's like, they're servants of God Most High telling you a way of salvation, which is not at all what they were saying. Servants of Yahweh telling the way of salvation. Plus, why would he want his message to be linked to this demon? Why would you want demons following you around shouting every time you try to tell somebody about Jesus? That'd be pretty annoying. And so he just couldn't take it anymore, and he decided this has got to stop. He sensed the demon, he sensed the power was present to cast it out, and he does it. And you can imagine how our owners felt about this. Their hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them in before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city's in a uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. And by the way, the term Luke uses here, the strategoi, this is refers to the two officials that would have been in charge of any Roman colony. Luke gets the, the term exactly right, just like he had Sergius Paulus as the proconsul there down in Cyprus. They're teaching customs illegal for us Romans to practice. So he's like these Jews playing on the anti-Semitism that would have been present. Us Romans kind of appealing to the Roman heritage, the Roman citizenship and status of Philippi. Well, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, whipping. They, they knew just how to whip the crowd into a frenzy. And so the city officials ordered them stripped naked and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison, dragged naked across town to the prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, and so he put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Yeah, Paul talks about this in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, you remember, we told you how badly we were treated at Philippi. It was was horrible. In 2 Cor 11.25, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. This was one of them. You don't forget that. John Pollock describes this scene, I think, particularly well. It's hard for us to imagine what a, what a public beating would have looked like. He says, as the blood ran from the cuts, the crowd roared. They would have had a whipping post in the middle. They might have tied him up or just held him in place. When a savage blow caught a vertebra and even a tough apostle could not suppress a cry, the people loved it. This was entertainment for them. Paul and Silas fought the pain with prayer. Urged on by the crowd, the lictors, those were the guys with the big, big, thick rods. This would have been like a caning, but with something heavier. Just somebody with a bat going to town on your back. 
They swung their rods with a will until both backs were bloody. The blows burnt like fire, wrote Pastor Richard Wormbrand, who had suffered rods frequently in communist prisons. It was as if your back were being grilled by a furnace, and the shock to the nervous system was great. He said the jailer had them manhandled, still naked across the main prison chamber, through a low opening into a windowless cave, the innermost room of the prison. And here was a contraption used for both security and torture. Remember the stocks he mentioned? These were rough bars of wood so placed that a criminal's legs could be stretched wide and held tight. Yeah, there were multiple holes that you could put the legs in to inflict maximum discomfort. Imagine going through all that and then having your legs spread wide open like you're, like, almost like you're doing the splits or something. It says um, you, even, um, you could even, it could even hold the wrists and neck in, gripped in various positions depending on how much pain the jailer wished to inflict. Well, because this was merely a security matter, he had Paul and Silas thrown to the ground and only their feet clamped in the bars, leaving the rest of their bodies free. But that still would have been painful. In that cave, Paul and Silas lie side by side, silent in a state of physical shock. The blood congealing, their muscles stiffening, unable to rest on their torn backs, yet in acute discomfort when they sat upright. Their feet were numbed and the wooden bar pressed on their ankles. The clothes they had put round each other's backs could not stop the shivering, and they were forced to lie in their own excrement. Sleep never came. Savage, beating. You can imagine how these guys were feeling about midnight. As Luke tells us in the next verse, it says, Around midnight, Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas what? Paul and Silas were feeling about as low as they'd felt in their whole lives. Paul and Silas were wondering, God, where were you? I thought we had something going here in Philippi. Paul and Silas were starting to argue with one another. No, none of the above. What does Luke tell us? Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Yeah, I mean, they weren't going to sleep anyway, right? Prayer is actually a pretty good thing to do if you can't sleep. But these prayers, these hymns, they're hymns singing the truth of God. Pray, this prayer like this, you start out praying to yourself. You start out by talking yourself back onto the truth. But eventually we start to see a joy enter the picture here. We see Paul and Silas able to have joy even in the midst of the darkest suffering here. The other prisoners couldn't believe this. They'd never seen anything like this before. How could you have joy in this kind of a dismal, dismal circumstance? Well, remember, this is the context for everything that happens next. Finally, God decided he'd had enough. Boom, suddenly a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Not a normal earthquake. Well, the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. He's getting ready to fall on his sword. If you lost your prisoners, you would be killed. And suicide, I guess they consider, was kind of a, an easier alternative. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We're all here! Not one of the prisoners left. 
even though the doors were open. I wonder why. I wonder if they wanted to see what Paul and Silas had to say. What could give someone joy in the midst of such terrible suffering? Think how their witness was actually enhanced by their suffering and their joy. The jailer called for lights and he ran to the dungeon and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he, he brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was probably a superstitious man wondering what the earthquake meant. He'd heard that, maybe that slave girl saying, these men are saying a way to be saved. And he says, what must I do? This is what religion asks. What must I do? What are the rituals? What are the good deeds? I'll do anything. And what do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. It's not what you do. Christianity is not what we do. That's what religion is. Christianity focuses on what Christ has done. It's do versus done. And he says, just put your trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. And if you're here tonight and you're wondering, how do I become a Christian? Look no further than Paul and Silas's short sermon here. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And by the way, he says that offer extends to everyone you know, everyone in your household. Don't listen to anybody that tells you uh, believing is not enough and easy believism is not the way of God. And you need to do these rituals or take this communion every week or you know, clean up your life. None of that. It's this right here. <laughs> this is what he wants from us. <laughs> and they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household and and they all believed. And even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. They're pulling an all-nighter here. And then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. So you've got mutual washings going on here. He brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. This is the joy you see come to people when they meet Christ. Well, the next morning, the city official sent the police to tell the jailer, you can let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, hey guys, the city official said you and Silas are free to leave. You can go in peace. But now, Paul's ready to lay his hand on the table. He says, oh, wait, they've beaten publicly us without a trial and put us in prison and we are Roman citizens. Oh, that's bad. You could lose your colony status for a move like that. You could be fired for something like that. This is the worst thing they could have done. They find out we just beat the son of the king. That's the guy who we beat and put in prison. And so Paul says, now they want us to leave secretly? No, certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. So he just crosses his arms and sits right there next to the stocks. The first ever sit-in on record. I mean, think about the evidence there. You have a, two Roman citizens clearly beaten in the inner room of the jail. Well, when the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. 
All of a sudden, they are tripping over themselves. They come to the jail. They're apologizing to them. Please don't tell anybody. (laughs) And then they brought him out, and they begged them, can you just leave the city? (laughs) Well, when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, where the believers were probably gathered praying. How shocked would they have been to see what actually happened last night? There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. And then they left town. Which brings us to the end of our first we passage. They left Luke there, along with Lydia and some others, to lead this early church, this, this young church at Philippi. One question is this. Why did Paul wait to mention his Roman citizenship? It's possible he was shouting it, but in all the confusion, they didn't hear him. But, you know... You think they never would have heard him even through all the beatings, the trip to jail, the night in prison? Why didn't they mention it this whole time? I think, I think it was an intentional move by Paul, and let me tell you why. Think about what would have happened to the rest of the Christians in Philippi if Paul had said, wait, guys, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this. Think about it. Could the non-citizens have been beaten? What about Timothy and Luke? What about Lydia? What about the others? They didn't have that exemption like Paul and Silas did. What would happen to them? How would the believers have viewed Paul if he skipped a beating they had to take? Think about that. He comes to town with this message and then he gets them all beaten. Would the officials at least have put many more restrictions on that church and stamped it out of existence? Perhaps. But now, Paul had a bargaining chip. He had something on those guys He had voluntarily taken on himself, and now he had some sway. And this is why when we read the letter to the Philippians, we see less of the the suffering that you see in a lot of the other churches. We see this church seem to have a freedom um, that allowed them to give powerfully and allowed them to be a powerful witness for Christ. And he had credibility as a leader because he suffered so they wouldn't have to. Kind of like Timothy, who underwent that painful circumcision. Paul underwent a beating, so the rest of the Philippians wouldn't have to. And when you read the letter to the Philippians, in light of this historical background, it makes so much sense. Look at Philippians 121. For me to live as Christ and die as gain. He lived that out before their very eyes. What about Philippians 2? He says, you've got to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What attitude was that? Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. That's what Christ did for us. That's what Paul did and Silas did at Philippi. He says in Philippians 3, join in following my example. Because guys, our citizenship's in heaven. That was his primary citizenship from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gave him the courage to suffer. He knew this life is short. The suffering is short. And finally, he says, you know, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They saw every one of those lived out in in blood and broken bones on the body of Paul and Silas. So in conclusion, what have we seen tonight? We've seen suffering for the sake of the gospel from Timothy, from Paul, from Silas. We've seen the importance of teamwork. 
that even though there'll be, there'll be some conflict sometimes, it's worth it. We need to learn how to form good teams. And we move into ministry, including suffering together. It wasn't Paul alone there, but it was Paul and Silas in that prison. And when we do our small part in ministry, we open the door for God to do his big part. God knows who he's got marked out. God will lead us through. God is doing a work in people's lives. He will empower us, whether it's directing us to the right people, opening their hearts, casting out the demons, sending divine guidance, or what he did through the Philippian church. Because God saw, he had had big plans for this group. In fact, what he did through the church at Philippi, we still feel the impact today. Have you considered just the financial giving ministry of Philippi, how that's impacted us? You think about wealthy women like Lydia seem to have been able to lead this church into an incredible generosity. First and second Thessalonians, Paul tells them, I didn't take any money from you guys. Not a single dime. He says, um, other churches were paying for my stay here. And that's what Paul writes in the letter to the Philippians. He says, multiple times when I was at Thessalonica, you sent a gift to meet my needs. That enabled him to be free of the suspicions that were plaguing him as a, a false teacher in it for the money at Thessalonica. And that's why we have First and Second Thessalonians, because that church was planted there. Two of our New Testament letters. What about First and Second Corinthians? He goes to Corinth. He's working as a tent maker. He's able to get to the synagogue once a week to preach. But then the guys from Philippi show up with money. And it says after that, Paul quits his job as a tent maker and every day he begins preaching the gospel in the marketplace and this huge revival breaks out. That's why we have the letter of First and Second Corinthians because the church was planted at Philippi. The Philippians funded that and the Thessalonian ministry. What about in prison in Rome? Paul says, thanks for the gift, guys. At the end of Acts, he's in Rome. And instead of being in the dungy uh, prison for poor people, he's able to rent a house. He's able to have guests. He's able to write. He's able to have uh, helpers in his writing. And what does he write while he's in Rome? Oh, just Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four more books in our New Testament. And by the way, he helps Luke finish up Luke and Acts. The Philippian church funded 10 letters in the New Testament. There's only 27 in there. They didn't know that's what they were doing. They were just trying to be faithful and serve in the way God had gifted them. And yet today, Lydia's dollars are still at work as we sit here and read the book of Acts and all these other letters as well. And that's the cool thing about God is we have no idea what he's doing and how he wants to use this in the future. We need to do is we need to show up and be faithful and do our part and let him do his. Yeah, God, thanks that um, even though we suffer, you give us co-workers and friends to do it with, Lord. We are, we are rich in relationships here, Lord. Thanks for the, um, the wealth you've given us too, and I pray that would not cool our spiritual lives, but that we would use that, we would maximize that to give to further your work. And I'm thankful for how you take the small little bit that we offer up and you do amazing things with it. I pray for tonight, Lord, too, that if there's anybody here who doesn't have a relationship with you, that they would turn to you in their hearts and that they would have their hearts opened up and they would receive Christ and forgiveness and they would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Amen.
This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.